We're going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. And that will be our sermon passage for tonight as well. But uh, you feel free to, to read along with me in your worship folder, or you can, you can just listen, uh, whichever one you prefer. Let me read for us. Mark chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's Word. We're continuing our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark tonight. And uh, last week, we looked at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And we learned about the very essence of his message. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. And while last week's passage provided a very succinct summary of what Jesus came to proclaim... This week we come to a summary or an overview of his ministry. Last week was his message, and this week Mark gives us an overview of his ministry. And when we look at verses 21 all the way through 39 as a whole, what we have here essentially is one whole day of ministry. A whole Sabbath day in Capernaum. Listen, in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Then verse 32, that evening at sundown, he goes to Simon Peter's house. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, he goes out to pray. And right after that, in verse 38, he says, let's go on to the next towns. 
So you see, Mark has given us an overview of Jesus' ministry, what he does when he shows up in a city, in a village, where people are, in the synagogues. And the, the, the striking central theme of this passage is Jesus' authority. The very beginning, he shows up in the synagogue and he teaches and he is recognized as having an authority that is unlike any other. Even more so than the religious leaders of his day. And the authority that we see him show and exert and demonstrate in this passage is the authority, the power of the kingdom of God breaking in to people's lives through his ministry. You see a man with an unclean spirit in the first section, and then he enters into Simon Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is there, and she's sick. And then he goes on, people come to him all evening and into the night, healing people of various diseases and casting out unclean spirits. This is the kingdom of God bringing restoration, undoing the effects of sin and all of the disintegrating effects that it has. You see, the passage, it assumes things are not as they should be. And here, at the very beginning, we get an initial taste of what it means that Jesus, as the messenger of the kingdom, but also the message of the kingdom, what does it mean? When God breaks in to a world ravaged by sin, what does it look like when redemption takes hold in real people's lives? But there is an enormous issue in question here that it, this passage is shot through with suffering, hardship, the presence of spiritual evil, real evil, that takes up residence in people's lives and wreaks havoc. What does that make you think about God? What does the reality in the presence of suffering, evil, hardship make you think about God? Does it make you want to push Him away? Does it make you think He isn't paying attention or He's simply cold-hearted and unfeeling? I think we can all agree that suffering and evil is a reality that is no respecter of people. doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. No one is exempt from that. No one is exempt from the fact that we live in a broken world. Whether it happens to you or happens to someone you know, it is an irreducible problem. And perhaps as much as the experience of it, the relentless why question continues to press in and it is elusive. It's an irreducible problem. It's almost impossible to answer the question, why do I suffer? Why is evil so awful and tragic? Why does it continue to press in on us? And I think because of that, it's often the case that people in general, and I think Christians are included in this, we often feel compelled to convince ourselves and, and other people that perhaps suffering isn't as bad as it could be or there's something good that will come out of it. 
And I'm not necessarily saying that those two things are always wrong, but we do feel this compulsion to have a reason to explain it away. And the problem is that explanations don't make the pain or hardship go away. They just don't. Evil is evil. Tragedy is tragedy. Suffering is suffering. And therefore, my goal tonight with this passage is I want us to wrestle with the reality of of suffering and evil and hardship through Jesus' ministry here. I want us to look at how Jesus responds to this problem. And not just how He responds, but the reasons that He gives for us to trust Him in the midst of it. And He gives us three reasons. He has the authority to undo and deliver us from suffering and evil. That's the first reason. The second reason He gives us to trust Him is that He doesn't fix everything right away. And the third reason is that He gets personally involved. So first, let's look at the first reason that He gives here, that He has the authority to do it. Which begs the question, well, what kind of authority does He have? Let's look in verse 22 to 27 together. And I'm going to keep your uh, worship folder handy because I'm going to point to different verses as we go together. But if you look at verses 22 to 27, it's, it's the initial part of the passage where Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. And immediately there's a man with an unclean spirit who shows up. And then verse 34, we're told that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he, he cast out many demons. In verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee preaching and casting out demons. See, here, the authority of Jesus is utterly unique. It's unmatched in every respect. At every point in the story, when he encounters the presence of evil and suffering, he undoes it. He reverses it. He has absolute, unique, unmatched authority in every respect. Everything in this story argues that Jesus' authority is unlike any other authority that's represented in the story. Whether it's religious authority with the scribes, and we'll talk much more about that as uh, we move through the book. Whether it's spiritual authority with the unclean spirits or the demons that Mark tells us about. Whether it's physical sickness and disease. Jesus' authority is unmatched in every respect, but it's also comprehensive. That is, over all the destructive influences operating in the world due to sin, He has absolute comprehensive authority. That's what Mark is trying to show us. See, here's the point. At this point in the story that Mark wants us to see, that Jesus has authority and the desire to undo everything that is wrong with life as we know it in order to make it right and beautiful again. At every point, Jesus' authority is unique. It's unmatched. It's comprehensive. But it's not only those things, it's also merciful. Look in verses 29 to 31. The section here where Jesus, after teaching in the synagogue, he goes to the home of Simon. 
where his mother-in-law is sick. And then also, again, verse 34, we read about how he heals people of various diseases. What I want you to see here is Jesus is in the synagogue where the religious leaders are, where the religious people are. Then he ends up going to one of his disciples' houses and encounters a mother-in-law. And then people bring friends and neighbors who are suffering of various for various reasons in various ways. Even as suffering and evil is no respecter of people, Jesus is no respecter of people. Do you see in this story, Jesus is merciful to everyone he encounters, no matter who they are or where they come from. He's pictured here in public and in private with religious people and with the people of the town. The power and mercy we see here is for everyone. He is this power and this authority that is merciful. It reaches into where people are most in need of his help. Think about the man with the unclean spirit. It's almost like he's not even a character in the story. We don't hear about his name. We don't know where he's from. Perhaps he is from Capernaum. All we hear about is the unclean spirit. In other words, it's, it's an image of how, a picture of how suffering and evil dehumanizes you. It robs you of who God made you to be, an image bearer of God. Evil and suffering takes up residence in your life and neutralizes you. And Jesus enters in and says, no, that is not who that man was designed and created to be. Or think of Peter's mother-in-law. Her life had come to a halt. She was laying down, ill with a fever. And he comes in, look in verse 31. Look at the mercy and the tenderness of Jesus. He came in, he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And in doing so, the fever left her. And she began to resume a normal life. The tenderness and mercy of Jesus. See, these two incidents are but illustrations of what Jesus did on a grand scale later in the day as people came to Simon's house. And even as he left Capernaum and went all throughout Galilee, that Jesus' authority is unique and it's merciful. There is no spiritual power or physical problem that Jesus was not able to overcome in order to restore the people affected by them. That's the good news of the kingdom. That's Jesus breaking into a world that needs a Savior. And Mark makes it very clear in these verses that Jesus' authority is unmatched, it's comprehensive, it's merciful. But remember something. What I said at the beginning. This this passage, it's a summary of Jesus' ministry. It's not the sum total of His ministry. And therefore, we must trust Jesus to deliver us from evil and suffering because this is our second point. He doesn't fix everything right away. He doesn't fix everything right away. And that is, I think, a problem for us. And it's one the passage actually presents us with. Look at verse 35 to 39. Jesus 
gets up early in the morning after a full day of teaching and preaching and healing. He gets up early. He goes out and he prays. And the disciples come after him and they're looking for him. In verse 37, they come to him and say to him, everyone is looking for you. And what you would think he would say is, oh, yeah, okay, let's go back. But what does he say? Let's go on to the next town. Let's leave. Let's move on. Now, here we have in the Bible an example of Jesus with the authority to deliver people from evil and suffering and sin, deliberately choosing not to. What are we to make of this? Now, remember how I said that the problem of evil and suffering, it's an irreducible problem. How do we tend to make sense of this? Let me give you just a few examples. And then one that I think helps us set up trying to resolve this problem as we see it from this passage. There are essentially, I think, two ways we we deal with this. There's a theoretical one where where we look at the problem of evil and suffering kind of like we look at the newspaper. There There are things like that that happen halfway around the world. And it's disturbing and it's distressing, but it's more or less theoretical. And it makes us think things like, look at all the appalling evil and suffering in the world. And for some people, they will continue with that and say, if God is good and all-powerful, he would stop it. Therefore, the traditional all-good, all-powerful God just must not exist. Or it can be a deeply personal problem. It's not just a philosophical one, but a deeply personal one. Where either you or someone you know has experienced heartache, hardship, suffering. And often the response is, I just cannot believe in a God who would allow this kind of thing to happen to me or the people I know and love. And the third way that we may try to make sense of of this might go... Um, something like this. There's a line of reasoning that if it is the case that given the fact that there is suffering and evil, God, he must have a good reason, must have a good reason for allowing evil and suffering. But I cannot think of one or perceive of any. There just seems to be no conceivable or perceivable reason, good reason why And so we often may come to the conclusion that therefore there cannot be any good reason why. And it is a difficult result when we think that way because you either have to decide, you know, he's not worth believing because I don't have a reason that satisfies me or what we're left with is I have to trust God with what I don't know. And I think that this last way of thinking about it actually expresses the, the crux of these verses. That we see Jesus actively engaged, freeing people, restoring people from the brokenness of the world, and then saying, I'm going to leave them and go somewhere else. See, why would Jesus leave Capernaum and go to other cities knowing there are still people suffering physically and spiritually in that place? And in order to answer that question, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus came to do. 
He didn't come just to deliver you or me individually from evil and suffering and hardship. He came to restore sinners to a right relationship with God and to deliver all of creation from the power and presence of sin and all of its consequences fully and finally and completely forever. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at Jesus' temptation at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And one of the things Mark teaches us that the temptation of Jesus means is Jesus came to begin his ministry in the world and in the context that you and I live in, a world ravaged by sin, plagued by temptation, shot through with hardship and suffering. That's where he begins because he has come to undo all of it. He has come to get right what you and I have gotten wrong and all the consequences that flow from it. That's what Jesus has come to do. But secondly, look at verses 38 and 39 again. He says to them, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. See, this is the haunting question still. Why is he leaving the job in Capernaum unfinished? But notice this. Jesus' determination to go to the other cities in no way changes or changed his authority over a desire to deliver people from evil and suffering. Do you hear that? Jesus, everywhere he went, did the same thing again and again throughout his entire ministry that we see him doing in this one vignette of a day in the life of Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he went, he does the same thing. Now, what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. The continuing presence of evil and suffering in our lives cannot mean that Jesus has abandoned us. Do you hear that? The continuing presence of what we see in the city of Capernaum as Jesus goes on and continues to heal and deliver people, that continuing presence in our lives of those things cannot mean that Jesus has abandoned us or that he doesn't have the power to do it. Because again and again we see him demonstrating the power to do it. So you may experience suffering in your life and you can still have hope and confidence that God has not forsaken you. Evil and suffering, hardship, Heartache in our lives doesn't disprove that Jesus will one day, if not right now today, completely vanquish evil and suffering. See, what we see Jesus doing on a smaller scale in these verses will one day be true. It will one day be true for us personally and all of creation. But let's be honest. Hardship and tragedy often feels like God has abandoned you. That he's either not good or he's not powerful. That he's cold-hearted and he's unfeeling. 
So is there anything else Jesus does to help you trust him to deliver you from evil and suffering? The third reason that he gives for why we must trust him is that he gets personally involved. Take again a look at verse 25. Jesus, the man in unclean spirit, shows up. Jesus gets personally involved. He takes action. Same thing in verse 31 with Simon's mother-in-law. He takes action. He comes to her. In verse 34 and in 39, we read the same thing. That Jesus gets personally involved. He heals people. He preaches good news. He casts out the ravaging sins of Satan's minions who wreak havoc with your heart, with your psyche, with your emotions. Jesus gets personally involved. And every point in the gospel story, we see Jesus doing that again and again. He vanquishes and conquers the effects of the fall. And the only time Jesus is defeated is when He willingly goes to the cross. The pinnacle of the kingdom of God coming to bring an end to the consequences of sin, the power of death, the reality and effects of evil and hardship are brought to an end at His defeat. That the ultimate picture of God promising and showing you you can trust Him is that He endured all of the effects, all of the punishment, all of the shame, all of the ramifications of a broken world brought on by our sin and rebellion against God. He willingly suffered and died on the cross. But you see, Jesus' defeat is really God's victory because He rose from the dead. Jesus, alive from the dead, is the first fruits of a new creation. It is a guarantee that the new creation has actually begun. And by God's Holy Spirit that takes up residence in your life, that new creation is beginning to take root and work itself out in your life. However, slowly that may happen. But it is the foretaste of that great day when that new creation will not be just what we look forward to in faith, but what we behold with our eyes with Jesus present with us. You see, evil and suffering have met their match in the message that he proclaimed, in the ministry that he performed, and in the death that he suffered. And therefore, Jesus is telling us You can have hope and comfort now, even when you are in the midst of suffering and hardship. See, Jesus' suffering gives you hope. His suffering gives you hope that your experience of evil and suffering will not prevail, even if you live with it your whole life. And I don't say that lightly. Many of you in this room, either personally or have relationships with others 
who will likely experience the, the ravages of a broken world the rest of their lives. The gospel of Jesus is good news even when we live with the reality of a broken world our entire life. There, it gives us hope. It is, in fact, the only reason that anyone could read a passage like Romans chapter 8 towards the end where Paul says words like this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The suffering of Jesus argues for that good news for you, that you can trust it. But not only does it give you hope, it gives you comfort. It gives you comfort. Jesus' suffering gives you comfort because you don't suffer alone. The suffering of Jesus Christ is a continual reminder to you that He understands. He's been there. That means no matter what you're going through or how long you are going through it, in Jesus Christ, you have a Savior who has experienced cosmic alienation, cosmic grief, cosmic sorrow, suffering, evil. He understands. And He is a refuge and a comfort for you. He understands because he has experienced it and he experienced it for you. He experienced it for anyone who would call upon him and trust in him and seek refuge and help in him. So even at this very early stage in Mark's gospel, we get the clear message that things are not as they should be or that they will be. And in this brief overview of Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus using his authority to make right what has gone so terribly wrong. But even more than that, what I hope you're getting from this story is that he has given you reasons to trust him this side of heaven, no matter what. No matter what. And I realize that is an astounding claim. But that is a claim that Jesus puts right in your lap this evening. And he puts the question to you, will you trust me, a suffering, crucified, risen Savior for sinners? That's his plea. That's his invitation. Mark has given us at this early stage a picture of his ministry to show you what it means that the king has come, the kingdom has broken in, and it is good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to help us to learn from Jesus. Oh, this is a hard, it's a hard topic, it's a hard reality. It's one that I think we spend a great deal of time trying to avoid or trying to fix, and it's exhausting. And we ask that the good news that Jesus brings in this passage of his authority that is utterly unique that's absolutely comprehensive, that's merciful, that also 
shows us that He understands and has experienced what we have experienced so that we might be free from it through faith in Him. We ask that You would make that so for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You would, let's, let's continue to worship together this evening by uh, praying together this prayer of offering. And one of the reasons we do this, it's worth me just mentioning, why do we pray this prayer? What is an offering? It's really a token. It's a symbol in the course of worship of saying, everything I have belongs to God. Everything I have is His. There's nothing I have that hasn't been given to me. It's a way of saying physically and tangibly, I owe Him everything because He has given me everything in Jesus. So let's pray this prayer of offering together. Our Father in heaven, we offer you these gifts as an expression of our love and gratitude to you for our redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who though rich for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Please use not only our money, but our time and talents to further the work of this church in word and deed, to the end that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.